Uh, this is just one of my favorite passages in the scripture. I'm going to pray uh, before we get into it uh, together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Uh, God, we just pray that you would meet us in your word this morning, that uh, many of us are in a spot where we don't believe we're able to do what we know you want us to do. So God, would you meet us in a way that you would compel us by who you are and what you've done, that we would follow you even if it's risky. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. We're in Mark chapter 8, and it's one of my favorite passages. This is a, a kind of a mirror of something that's already happened in Jesus' life back in Mark chapter 6, a feeding of the 5,000 there, and now this is the feeding of the 4,000. And I, I, it's so similar, and, and Mark is such a short gospel, uh, it kind of makes you wonder, why would Mark spend so much time telling a, a story that happened twice in Jesus' life with his disciples, but, but telling it in such a similar way and take up all this space in such a short little gospel, telling all of Jesus' life? And I think it's because he wants us to get what we're going to hear this morning out of the scriptures. Uh, because you, you might be in a spot right now where you're saying, Man, I cannot forgive that person. I just can't forgive them. Either something that happened uh, long ago in your past and you're, you're holding on to this uh, uh, anger or angst uh, towards them, the, the harm they caused, and you're, you're just thinking, I can't forgive them and, and I can't uh, keep loving them or be patient with them. I, uh, maybe you're feeling that with your spouse that you're living with and they give you a new reason every day not to forgive them and you're thinking, man, I, I, just, I cannot forgive them. Uh, or maybe, you know, maybe, maybe you've built this relationship, right? You're, you're in this relationship with this uh, a coworker, a neighbor, a friend, and they don't know Jesus. And you're thinking, man, if they knew Jesus, it would radically transform their whole life. And like, he'd give them such purpose and peace and hope. And I, I could see him reconciling uh, relationships in this person's life. Man, that'd be amazing if they knew Jesus. But I cannot share with them. And I, I can't invite him on a Sunday morning or to my community group. I, I, I can't do it. Or, or maybe you've been hearing about our refugee ministry or foster ministry or uh, with vulnerable children or Title I and how folks are jumping in in different community groups. You're just serving like crazy in different areas. And you're thinking, I can't do that. Look, I don't even have enough time to do that. I, I don't even really want to do that. But I certainly, I, man, what could I do in the life of a refugee? Right? I, I, what could I, I, I can't do that. I'm not able to do what I know he wants me to do. And this story highlights those moments which we've all had in our life and we all will have when we don't feel able to do what we know God wants us to do. So let's get into the text. We're in chapter 8, verse 1. Like I said, this mirrors what has already happened in a group of 5,000 men. So it's probably a whole bunch more because they were just counting the men at that time. In this story, a group of 4,000 says people. They probably counted everyone in the crowd. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of the Bibles from the end of the pew and you can take that as a gift as your own. And, you know, we like to kind of encourage, hey, let's take notes or let's jot at the pages as, as things that God says jump out to us out of his word. In those days when a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and he said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. 
and some of them have come from far away. Did you hear what Jesus says? He sees this great crowd, they're in this desolate place, and he says, I have compassion on this crowd. Uh, that word is splognizomai. It's the Greek for the guts churning, the, the entrails, the inside of a person. God has guts is what this is saying. And they are churning when he looks out in compassion at this crowd. And in chapter 6, he says uh, the same kind of thing. He, he churns with compassion. His guts churn because they're like a sheep. They're like sheep without a shepherd. He's been teaching them for three days that they might know the way of life found in himself. And they are super hungry. They're in this desolate place. So they're, they're out in kind of the middle of nowhere, probably on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, up north where Jesus' hometown is. It's a desolate place. There's nothing around, no grocery stores. And, and they just, they don't have enough to feed the crowd. And Jesus says, I have compassion on these people. They're hungry and they need the words of life. And he says, man, some of them have come from far away away. If I send them home without food, they're going to faint. They're not even going to make it home. We've got to do something about this, Jesus is saying. He's seen the need. Verse 4, and the disciples answered Jesus, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? I love how they say it. How can one feed? They don't even say, how can we feed? He's like, don't even look at us, Jesus. Like, how can one feed all these people uh, in this desolate place? We don't have uh, the necessary resources. We are not able to do anything about this, Jesus. I love Jesus' next question, verse 5. And he asked them. I can kind of see Jesus kind of beelining in on his disciples at this moment. And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? How many loaves do you have? What do you have on you? What do you have with you? As, as little as it may be. You don't feel like you have the necessary resources to jump into this problem or go towards these people or do anything about this or that or, or, or take that step of obedience you know you need to take. You don't have what it takes, but what do you have? So uh, what, we, what we've got, they respond, we have seven loaves. Verse 6, Jesus directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. He took their seven loaves, and having give thanks, he broke them, gave them to his disciples, set them before the people, and they set them before the crowd. I love the process. <laughs> Jesus, churning with compassion for these people, they need the words of eternal life, and they need mercy and food. They say, disciples, we, we can't do anything about this. We don't have what it takes. Jesus says, what do you have? They say seven loaves. They hand what they have to Jesus. And Jesus looks up to heaven. He prays and thanks. He takes their resources. He breaks it all up. He gives it back to them. He, he engages them in the work of mercy, engages them in the work of sharing the good news, and he gives them back their resources, and he says, go take it to the crowd. And then they go out, and they give what Jesus has given back to them, which was theirs. They're a part of his work, part of the process. And verse 8, the whole crowd ate and were satisfied. It was a feast 4,000 people ate and were satisfied. That word, they were satisfied, is the same word back in verse 4 where the disciples asked him, how could we feed or satisfy these people? It's the same word. 
They're like, how could we satisfy these people? And Jesus says, I'll take what you have, I'll give it back to you, and then I'll work through you in a miraculous way. They ate and they were satisfied. A feast was had that day. I love all the number details in this. Seven loaves turns into seven basketful. 4,000 people, insurmountable in a desolate place. Uh, a few little fish. I love that adjective that Mark adds there. Little fish. <laughs> little fish. Uh, you know, uh, back in chapter 6, there were, there were five loaves and, and two little fish, and, and they collect 12 baskets full for over 5,000 people. The numbers are amazing. With what little resources, God does such huge work. Here's the main idea, the principle, I think, that jumps out of this passage. Give what you've got and see what God does. Give what you've got. And you and I, we see what God does with it. Give what you got and see what God does. It's as if, it's as if he's saying, look, look, I'm God, right? Like Jesus is in the middle. He said, I'm the one who's got compassion for these people who's going to do something about their problem. And I'm going to use and work through you. You can be my co-laborer in the eternal work that Jesus is doing. He says, come on in. Just give what you got and see what I do, Christ says. I'm God. I'll provide. I'll work. I'll move. You get to jump in. Uh, two principles that have to go along with this main idea. The first goes with the first, give what you've got. Give what you've got. Why? Everybody's got something. Because everybody's got something. He asks them, what do you got? They're like, seven loaves and a few little fish. But we've got something. What do they have? What do we all have? We have the message of life and the resources for mercy. That's what we have. We have the message of life and the resources for mercy. But when, when you go into a relationship with a neighbor, a coworker, a friend, you're, you're sitting at work, you start asking questions about, you know, you're going a little deeper in relationship. Well, how's your family? Uh, what, what do you guys, uh, how, do you, how do you celebrate this or that? Oh, uh, what's, what's life look like here or there? What you start realizing is people are, are wrestling in, in a lonely kind of way with things like purpose. What's my purpose in life? Peace. Where, where do I find peace and stability? Identity. Where, where, where do I get my identity? But here's the difference. With all these questions that are floating out there in people's lives, we, by grace, have the answers. We've, we, we have the message of life that tells us we have a God who's run towards us. And Jesus, he's provided everything we need by his body being broken, his blood being spilled. He's paid for our sins. He's made us sons and daughters. We have great purpose in life with him. We've got identity as his sons and daughters. We've got stability and peace. And, and we know what our future holds in all of eternity. Look, we have the message of life that everyone is longing for. And we have the resources of mercy. Why, why do you have the car that you have? It's a resource of mercy to use it for the work of the God. It's not just to drive us around, but, but who are we to drive around? Why do we have the couch that we have? 
A family just told a story, first service. Uh, this couch was given and moved up into this refugee's home as they resettled here in the States, and they were able to outfit, this community group was able to outfit their whole home. Why do we have this kind of stuff? You might have your couch to give it away for the resources of mercy or to host your neighbor, your coworker, your friend, that you might build relationship and share the good news of the gospel in your home. Every resource we have and the message of life, everybody's got something to give. In Matthew uh, chapter 25, Jesus tells this parable. He says this in Matthew chapter 25. Uh, For it's going to be like a man, the kingdom of God, who goes on a journey. Man, this is God who, who goes on a journey and he calls his servants to him and he entrusts to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. And when he went away, he had received the, the one who had received five talents, went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received only one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and he settled accounts with these three servants. And he who had received the five talents came forward and bringing the five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents, and here, I made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had two talents, came forward saying, Master, you've delivered to me two talents. Here I've made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He who had also received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you didn't sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. I went and I hid your talent in the ground, and here, have what's yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew me to to reap where I've not sown and gather where I've scattered no seed? Well, at least then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and, and coming and should have received what was my own with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to those who has ten talents. You know who I feel bummed for in the story? The guy who didn't get any talents. Oh, wait. Everybody got talents. 20 years wages, right? That's what a talent is. Everyone was given something. And you know what the difference was between the first two servants and the last one? Their perception of who their master is. How good and generous and amazing and, and, and what a master he is to, to, to entrust us with his resources for his purposes to do his kingdom work. And he says, hey, here, you have this car, you have this couch, you have this time, you have this money, you have this talent. Use it for me. Everybody's been given something. All of us. I, I was in high school. I grew up in Howard County, just north of here, and Uh, What does a high schooler have? Man, nothing, right? (laughs) You just kind of leech off your parents. (laughs) And I went to a helping up mission. You know, our our youth group was helping with helping up mission in Baltimore. And so we show up there and, uh, you know, what do we have? Well, we got a guy who plays guitar. So this uh, actually was a gal. She's she's up there strumming along. We sing some songs at helping up mission. This is uh, 
uh, for folks who are, are wrestling with homelessness, and uh, they're there, and they kind of have to sit through our program in order to eat afterwards, so they got to listen to this gal who's not too good on guitar, and we're singing the song, and then I get up there, I share this little thing, it was really fun, and, and uh, you know, uh, I'm like, wow, okay, we gave them something, that was really cool, and then I sit down afterwards, uh, eating, and I sit down next to Johnny, and Johnny's been homeless for just under a year. His name's actually Johnny. Sometimes a preacher will use that name, Johnny. <laughs> but this is, his name was actually Johnny. We sit down, we're talking. He's been homeless for a bit under a year. And he goes, uh, Man, Matt, I'm not going to be homeless for much longer. He starts telling me about uh, his, his faith in Jesus. And he's like, but he, and he literally said, you know what? I think Jesus might have me homeless right now that I could share the good news with the other homeless people I'm meeting. And it's like blowing my mind because he's like got all this, he's smiling, he's got joy talking about who Jesus is and what he's done and this terrible time he's come under. But then how even in his homelessness, he's using that to get the good news of the gospel out. And he's like, and here I am at Helping Up Mission and I'm going to get things back on track and I'm going to get things going. And I was forever changed that day. That guy was, he had, what he had was his homelessness, using it for the Lord as he got back on his feet at Helping Up Mission. Everybody's been given something. Uh, there's two ways to figure out how, how do we use what we've got. Uh, there's two ways to figure this out. Uh, the first is, uh, you know, hey, hey, Jesus looks around, right, first and sees the need. They have nothing to eat. That's the first way for it, right? Look around and saying, where does the need exist? They had nothing to eat. And then taking your resources and saying, hey, I, I could use a bit of that. One of our groups up north is saying, hey, we can engage with Montgomery County Coalition for the Homeless. And, and they're serving like crazy up there. They're, they're throwing a, a Thanksgiving feast in repetitious ways, sharing the good news of the gospel, and also uh, getting socks for little kids. Man, to see that pack of little socks that they gave it was amazing. Now look around, see the need, and then how do your resources match up with the need? The, the other way there uh, is this. Uh, the, the disciples are asking, well, how many loaves do you have? First, look at your resources. you got seven loaves. Just look at what you have. Look at what I have and say, how could I use this for the Lord? Uh, we, see, we can see the need first, or we can see the resources first, and, and then go and say, uh, everybody's been given something to gauge with God in the work of the gospel, uh, to share the good news that brings life, and to, to pour out mercy through the resources that we have. All of us have something. A second principle that jumps out of this passage is uh, then we get to see what God does. Because wow follows risk. Wow follows risk. They wouldn't have gotten to see they ate and were satisfied. They wouldn't have gotten to see seven basketfuls of bread collected. They wouldn't have got to see any of that had they not given what they got to the Lord, right? And the, the wow follows the risk. Wow follows risk. Wow is the flip side of risking in obedience. Of risking in obedience. Taking that step to say, I'm going to offer forgiveness. I'm going to invite my coworker to my 3D group. I, I, I'm going I'm to try and share the good news with him or her. I'm going to leap into that service project uh, of resettling a couple new families who have just arrived here in, in November and in December. I, I'm going to do something about the need I see with the resources I have. I'm going to take that step. I only see what God does when we give what we've got. In Exodus uh, chapter 4, 
We collide with the story of Moses. And, and you know, God's people have all been enslaved by the Egyptians at this point. There's, there's thousands of them. And Moses is looking around saying, man, there's no way out for our people, God. I don't have what it takes. I'm not able. One is not able to free your people, God. And God, in chapter 4 Moses says, of Exodus, says, Moses, you're going to do it. And Moses, you can see him kind of, uh, he's got that one foot forward. He's thinking, should I take the risk? Wow's on the other side of risk of obedience. And, and Moses, here, here's how he answers the Lord first. Chapter 4, verse 1 of Exodus. But behold, God, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Uh, the circumstance is impossible, God. Pharaoh's not going to listen to me. They're not going to listen to my voice. This is going to fall flat. The circumstances are impossible, insurmountable. The numbers are too big. And God, he kind of gives him this almost like a magic trick to do with his staff to prove, man, I'm with you, God says. And, and so Moses is like, oh, okay, fine. Circumstances are impossible. I've got the staff thing going now. And then he answers, Moses again says to God, verse 10 of chapter 4 in Exodus, but Moses said to the Lord, but again in contrast, in opposition to the Lord, but Moses said to the Lord, oh my God, I'm not eloquent. Either in the past or in the future, he's spoken to your servant. I'm slow. I, I, I'm, I'm slow of speech and tongue. My resources are inadequate to do what you have called me to do here. The, the, the circumstance is impossible, sure. Now the staff thing, you, yeah, you figured that out. But, but, but I am inadequate. My resources are inadequate. I can't do what you've called me to do here. I, I won't take that step. I love how God answers him. Who made your mouth? <laughs> That's what God says to Moses. Who made man's mouth? Like He's like, I created your mouth. I think I can take care of it, God says. Moses says, fine, circumstances are impossible. You took care of that. Uh, my resources are inadequate. Okay, fine. You made my mouth. Maybe you take care of that. Verse 13 of chapter 4. But again in opposition, Moses again says in contrast to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. <laughs> Just please send someone else. I don't want to go. The risk is too big. This is not going to go well. But then he goes. He takes that step of obedience. And on the other side of risk follows this wow as God shows up. You know, we've seen families here just do this. A family said, we don't have what it takes to do emergency foster care placement. Like, we, 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 can't, we can't bring a kid into our home for three hours or maybe a day or so. We, we can't do it. We just can't do it. And then they do it, and they see the Lord provide in different ways through his church and through these different resources. And, and, and they say, wow, we got to care for her in this critical situation for those few hours. We're, we're so glad we took the risk. We've seen this happen where you, where you grow in a relationship with a neighbor or a coworker, or a friend, and you say, hey, you want to come check out the well? And they come, and then they hear good news of the gospel. And over time, they say, man, I believe, and then we get to baptize and celebrate. Our God is good. Or you, you begin and you have conversations with a family member who doesn't yet know Christ, and, and you offer forgiveness, and, and restoration comes, and you say, wow, as you see God show up on the back end of risk. Before we get to our final points here, I, I want us to take a second to pray. 
As you know, uh, for over a year now, we've been looking, Lord, would you provide for us the right space? It's too much for us. We, we're inadequate in our resources. The, the situation is impossible here in Silver Spring with land. Like, Lord, do something. And so I've been telling you about one space, this one, where uh, we're, we're praying, Lord, might you do this? Oh, he's just gotten a firm, hard no. Just a firm, hard no. No. And then now, right now, there's one other one out, out there, and it just looks... It looks a bit out of our reach. Just looks a bit out of our reach. So I just want us to pray. I just want us to pray about it. Pray, pray about it. just space in general. Lord, Lord, we know, right? Don't we know? He, he wants to sink our roots here in this area that we might see the gospel go deep and, and go out in mercy as we demonstrate and declare the good news of Christ. That, that our community groups would flourish and this one who's serving there uh, with the homeless and this one's serving with vulnerable children and all of us who are jumping in all these different things and, and these serving with Title I schools and throwing great parties to care for teachers and share the gospel. I got another letter from a principal just last week saying, you're just blessed. You're church is just blessing us like crazy don't we know that he wants to sink uh, sink our roots here deep that the gospel might go out for generations to come and we can plant church after church after church to bring the good news we just don't know how how on earth are you going to do it so we got to pray about that and we're going to spend time doing it now but but i also want you to scan your life and just say lord where are you calling me into a step of obedience to forgive somebody that you haven't forgiven to share with somebody, to engage in your neighborhood, to welcome them into your house with hospitality that you might build relationship and share the gospel. Uh, maybe some of you, some have been doing, uh, invite a, a smaller group of people, neighbors, coworkers, and friends to read Jesus the King with you and say, hey, it's going to go through the book of Mark and talk about who Jesus is together. Maybe it's jumping into emergency foster care place. I don't know what it is for you. But what's God calling you to do where you just don't feel able to do it? And you don't want to take that step. But man, if you did, you might see wow on the back end. And so I'm going to do something we don't often do here. And if, if you're able, uh, would you kneel with me or, or would you bow your heads in prayer? Uh, go ahead and kneel if you're able. And I, I would just lay the building before the Lord that he might provide the right space in the right time. I lay that person you've been wanting to share the good news of the gospel with or build relationship with. Uh, lay the inequality of our schools before the Lord. Lay, lay the, uh, the, the critical situation that foster kids are in before the Lord. Lay all these things before the Lord and say, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to engage and talk to him about it? Let's pray silently now. Father, we as a church don't have what it takes. We've got seven small loaves. <laughs> and we've been asking, would you provide the right space and the right time for us? God, would you blow us away with your provision as we continue to step in obedience? God, whatever place you have for us, would you provide it? That we would say, wow, to the grace, the mercy, the might, the power that you provide. And that we would get to see, uh, God, you're... Your message of life and your resources of mercy flow through us as a church for generations to come. 
God, there's so many more principals to write so many more letters and, and so many more foster kids to get cared for and adopted and so many more refugees would be welcomed with open arms and, and, and given homes to live in. God, would you do a mighty work that many would receive salvation and, and trust you and follow you and enjoy peace, purpose, life, identity in your son. And God, we know every little mini step of obedience that you've called every one of us to right now. God, many of them have been prayed about right this moment. Would you make us individuals, would you make us a church who step in obedience in these areas, risking by faith the resources you've given us to engage in the work of the gospel? And would, would we get to see you do things where our mouths would drop and we'd say, wow, I can't believe you rescued my coworker. I can't believe you poured mercy through our church in that, the life of that family. I can't believe you just uh, restored another home this past week through one of our build teams. God, I can't believe you worked. God, would you do a mighty work in and through us by your grace? We hand you our loaves that you might give them back to us and empower us for the work of the ministry of the gospel. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I think there are two reasons why we don't Give what we got and see what God does. I think there are two main reasons. Uh, the first is the numbers just don't make sense. Logic overcomes faith. The numbers just don't make sense. 4,000 people with seven little loaves. 5,000 plus people with just a few loaves and a couple fish. The numbers just don't make sense. Uh, but then we read verses like Psalm 50, verse 10, where God says, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I own everything. Or, or we read stories in history of like uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 29, where, where David and Solomon are gathering all these kind of things to build this huge temple. And they say, man, we don't have the resources that we need. And, and then uh, David gives like 3,000 uh, talents of gold. And, and it's like, Wow, and then everyone else keeps pouring all this stuff. And here's what they say at the end of it when they provide everything that's necessary. Here's what they say. God, it was all yours. We give it back to you for your work. Now do something miraculous. Sometimes the numbers amongst don't make sense and logic seems to overcome faith. But what matters far more is what he has than what we have. And what matters far more is who he is versus who we are. That's what matters. The second reason I think we don't take this leap and give to God uh, and see what he does through us and through our obedience and risk is that it won't matter. It won't make a difference. It won't matter. Uh, this person or that situation is just too dire. Uh, why, why would I share with my Jewish neighbor who's already decided what he believes and he's, he's kind of old, he's setting his ways. Why, why, what, why? It's not going to matter. Or why would I jump into uh, the inequalities I see in the school system and, and, and care for uh, kids in this situation? I, it's not going to matter. The, the, the situation is too dire or it's too vast. It's just a, a little drop in the bucket. Why, what could God do through a, a step of obedience like mine, this little one drop in the bucket of this huge, massive problem or in the hardness of heart of this one person? I love the story of Saul's conversion in Acts chapter 9. Uh, Saul is the guy who turns into Paul, kind of the Paul. <laughs> 
the Apostle Paul who gets the good news of the gospel to all ends of the earth, that, that Paul. And Saul, his, uh, Saul Paul, it was in Jerusalem. He got this letter from Jerusalem that, that he could go into Damascus and he could start arresting Christians, the followers of the way, and binding them and bringing them back uh, to jail them or to kill them. So that's, that's Paul Saul at this point, right? He's heading towards Damascus. And, and as he's on the way there, verse 4 of chapter 9 in Acts, Jesus speaks from the heavens. And he says, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, who you're persecuting. Rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what to do. And he goes blind for three days. And he's there in the city of Damascus. And this is Saul, Paul, who we've all heard about. I mean, this guy changes the world, right? But Ananias, Ananias is there in Damascus, and Ananias is a disciple of Jesus there in in Damascus. And the Lord says to Ananias in verse 10, now this is just a humdrum normal dude. He says to him, uh, Ananias, and Ananias responds, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. You know where that is. This is your hometown. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus. His name's Saul. And you can see Ananias' mouth drop at this point. For behold, he, Saul, is praying, and he's seen a vision of a man named Ananias, that's you, come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now listen to Ananias' response. Heck no! <laughs> Verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, uh-uh, I've heard from many about this man. He, he look, this guy is far beyond uh, the work and the help I can give him. I don't have what it takes to do this. Uh, how much evil this guy's done to, for the, uh, to your saints in all of Jerusalem. And he is here with the authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on his name right here in Damascus, my hometown. But the Lord said to him, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the Jews. So Ananias goes into an impossible situation with limited resources and he prays for Saul, Paul, who he thinks is probably going to kill him and scales fall from Saul's eyes. He becomes Paul. He's immediately baptized. And the next passage in in the scriptures is Paul just going, preaching the gospel like crazy. And many come to follow Christ. On the, on the back side, this, this step of obedience is this mighty wow. And we think it's not going to make a, a difference if I share with that person because their heart is so hard. Or, or if I drop this little drop of, of, of obedience in this giant bucket of problems, nothing's going to change except that it does. Yeah, you know, one of our guys in this community group has said, I'm going to just start playing soccer with some of these kids at Georgia Forest. He's pouring his life into him. Guess who that matters for? That one kid who gets cared for. That's who it matters for deeply. And you have no idea where that grace goes and how eternity has changed in that kid's lives and through that life. Or this family says, yeah, man, I'm going to try this foster thing. And they try this foster thing. They think they're going to have this kid for 48 hours. It's three years later, and they're about to adopt him. And you say, wow. God, I can't believe what you've done. Or when you begin to share the good news with a neighbor or a coworker or a friend, and, and it's not hard heart that you get, but you start seeing the, the, the wheels turning, their eyes open, and you say, whoa, God, you're transforming a life. The process is simple. It's found in verse 6. Just hand it over to Jesus, pray like crazy, and then just do it. 
And Jesus takes what they have, he prays, he gives thanks, and, and then they just go out and do it. I don't know what the Lord is calling you to, but hand it over to him. Follow him in obedience and then watch him do what he does. In both times, the Lord just shows amazing provision and amazing power through his disciples. Both times, chapter 6 and in chapter 8, they forget right away. They just forget right away. In chapter 6, they see him do this miracle with the 5,000 plus people, feeding them all with just five loaves and two fish. And then they're on the water in this boat, and there's a storm going up, and they're all terrified. Listen to what the text says in verse 50 of chapter 6. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately, when they're out on the lake in this storm, Jesus spoke to them, and he said, Take heart, it's I, don't be afraid. And Jesus got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves but their hearts were hardened. They didn't realize, who is this Jesus? He's the Savior we've been waiting for, the one who can provide everything through us and work through us in a miraculous way for His grace and His purposes and His kingdom. They'd forgotten the feast, all that Christ had done. Chapter 8, same thing. This feast happens. They see God do this amazing, miraculous thing in them and through them. And then they're on the road, and he says, Jesus says this thing about Herod and the Pharisees and the teaching they're going to encounter. And listen to the disciples. They, they think he's talking about the fact that they've forgotten bread. Which, can you imagine? Like, he's just fed 4,000 people, and you're thinking, oh, he's probably mad at us because we forgot something to eat. We're on a journey. We don't have enough food with us. And they began discussing with one another, verse 16 of chapter 8, the fact that they had no bread with them. And Jesus was aware of this. This is just after the feeding of 4,000. And he said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Like we just, we just had a massive feast by the miraculous work of God. Don't you understand? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not even see? And ears, don't you? Jesus is getting kind of mad at him. And don't you remember? Don't you remember when I broke the five loaves of the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12? Yeah. And the seven for the 4,000 people? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, seven baskets full. And he said to them, do you not understand that I am the God who provides everything that is needed, enough that it would just overflow through you for my grace and purposes in this world? Don't you understand what a Savior Jesus is, what he's done for us, and what he wants to do through us? You don't even need any loaves of bread. <laughs> I've done it all, Christ says, and I'll keep doing it in and through you by your mercy, grace, and power. We have another feast. It's a remembrance every week we take together. To remember what our God has done and how he's worked in our lives, how he might work through us in mighty and powerful ways by his mercy and grace. That we might hand our whole selves over to this Savior and see what he does with our lives for his purposes. So if you're following Jesus this morning, as you take and eat, I'd ask you to remember what has your Savior done to provide for every aspect of your life. That you can trust Him in that step of obedience He's calling you into right now. And if you're not a believer, here's what I'd ask. Don't take the meal. 
you're not trusting Christ yet, but, but instead pray and receive Jesus. Receive what he's done for you. His body broken, his blood spilled, a feast for you to make you a son or daughter that you could sit at the table with him now and forever. Receive the work of the gospel in Christ. So let's take and eat and remember. And then let's step and walk and risk and faith and obedience and everything he's called us to do. Handing ourselves over to God and seeing what he does in and through us by his grace. Let's take and eat together.